This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Al Yankovic, a.k.a. Weird Al Yankovic, is famous for his song parodies, for which he writes comic lyrics to hit songs. Beat It became Eat It. My Sharona became My Bologna. Another One Bites the Dust was Another One Rides the Bus. Like a virgin, like a surgeon. Riding, riding dirty, was transformed into white and nerdy. He's recorded a mashup of songs from Hamilton, polka style. Yankovic's instrument is the accordion, not exactly a mainstay of rock bands or hip-hop. In keeping with his style of comedy, the new movie Weird, which he co-wrote, parodies music biopics, as well as action films and film noir, and offers an alternate version of his life. In the movie, playing accordion gives him the status of a guitar hero. Making up words to songs that already exist is considered a high calling, the work of a visionary. Artists, including Madonna, will do anything to get him to parody their songs, knowing their song will become a hit if Weird Al parodies it. He becomes so popular, he's asked to be the next James Bond. Daniel Radcliffe stars as Al Yankovic. Although Yankovic never achieved quite the status his character does in the film, he's been quite successful. He's the third music performer after Michael Jackson and Madonna to have a top 40 single in each decade since the 80s. He recently completed his tour, which he called the unfortunate return of his ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour. You can see his new movie, Weird, streaming on Roku.com for free. Let's start with one of his early hits, which is also in the film. Here's Eat It. Welcome to Fresh Air. I laughed out loud during your movie. Well, that's so nice to hear. Thank you so much. So we just heard Eat It. Um, how did you decide to do that Michael Jackson song? Why did you choose that one? And I should mention, this was the era where like music videos were really big, and Michael Jackson's videos, including Beat It, were like huge at the time. And of course, you did a video of Eat It, too. Well, I mean, in 1983, 84, uh, Michael Jackson was the most popular human being in the universe. And, you know, the Beat It video was getting played a dozen times a day on MTV. And this was at a time when people were obsessed with MTV. It was a fairly new phenomenon, and people watched it continually. It was like video wallpaper. They just had it on in the house. And people were familiar with every little detail of that music video. So it was very easy to parody because people were already familiar with the source material. And all I had to do was tweak things just a little bit, just make it a little askew uh, to make it funny. So it was just, uh, frankly, just the obvious thing to do. You really capture what some uh, music biopics are like and how they distort certain facts and the turning points that you have to have in a music biopic. In a lot of biopics, the parent doesn't want the child to go into music because it's too much of a gamble 
or they think their child isn't really talented enough, or music is too frivolous, it's not real work, and it won't support you because you're not good enough. So in your parody of music biopics, when the young version of Al Yankovic gets interested in writing song parodies, his father thinks, like, that's ridiculous, that's terrible, he should work in the factory with the father. Um, I want to play a scene from Weird in which the father's been trying to convince him to work at the factory. And um, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I just think it so captures (laughs) a trope (laughs) of uh, music biopics. So um, let's hear it. And uh, young Al Yankovic's mother speaks first. How old is young Al in this scene? Maybe eight, nine years old. So here it goes. This is a scene with the mother, the father, and young Al. Alfie, aren't you going to ask your father how his day was? Um, how was your day, Dad? Well, how's my day? We had another fatality down at the factory. Oh, we had a real grisly one this time. It was the McKinley kid that started last week. Kept telling him to stop messing around by that industrial shredder, but he just wouldn't listen. I would have reached out and grabbed him, but I already lost one hand to that cursed machine. Well, anyway, there's an opening down in the factory floor. Maybe I could pull a few strings and you could spend the summer working with your old man. How's that sound? Um, no thank you. No thank you. We're well, gonna have to learn sooner or later that factory... The factory will make a man out of you. But I don't want to work at the factory. I want to make songs. What? You want to make songs? Did you hear that, Mary? Well, we got a regular Bing Crosby on our hands, don't we? Nick, you're embarrassing him. Oh, am I? Why don't you sing us a little ditty, Bing, huh? Such a little songbird. Sing one for us. Amazing grapes, how sweet the juice. It tastes so good to me. Stop it, stop. What in God's name are you doing? Those aren't the right words. I know. I made them better. By changing the lyrics to a well-known song? No, but what you're doing is confusing and evil. God, and I will not have that kind of blasphemy in my own home. But, Dad... What has gotten into you, Alfred? Hmm? With the songs and the crazy magazines? That is all going to stop now, young man. Honey, I know it's hard to hear this, but your dad and I had a long talk, and we agreed it would be best for all of us if you just stop being who you are and doing the things you love. Every line in that scene is so funny. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Was Amazing Grapes written for the film, or did you actually write that as a kid? (laughs) No, no, that was, uh, I mean, I I certainly could have at some point, but uh, that was written for the film, yeah. Your father worked in a factory like the father in the movie, and um, it was a steel factory? Did he make steel? Is that? I believe it was a sheet metal manufacturing plant. But he was very blue collar. Worked in a, a lot of different random jobs over the years. But you know, it wasn't it wasn't some oppressive factory as portrayed in the movie. Of course. Did he want you to work in the factory, or did he want you to have a diff- different kind of life? No, I, I think I think um, 
he uh, he was glad that I was a nerdy kid. I was a smart child, uh, you know, valedictorian, straight A's and all that. And he was very proud of that. And he wanted me to do something where I could, you know, earn my living by thinking rather than, you know, by doing hard labor. I love the mother and father's advice in this to the young Alec, like, stop being who you are and doing the things you love. <laughs> you know, because that's basically the advice people are given in the biopics. But um, what was your parents' reaction to you loving the things that you love, like music parodies, Mad Magazine, you know, like silly and crazy jokes? I think they were very supportive. I mean, um, in the very beginning, I think my mother was a little reluctant because she was extremely protective. And uh, when I first started, like, knocking on doors and trying to get something going uh, with a recording career, she was, I have to say, maybe a little apprehensive because... uh, she told me more than once that there are evil people in Hollywood and I should be very careful. And she's not wrong, <laughs> but, but she was just a little leery about me doing anything uh, involving show business. Um, but I was always very adult-minded. It's not like I'd, I ran away to L.A. to become a rock star or anything like that. I, I went to college. I got my degree in architecture. Uh, I remained a fairly good student. And I, I was, was pretty adult-minded. And I, I actually didn't quit my day job until I was on the Billboard charts. In biopics, in music biopics, there's always something that the songwriter sees or hears that makes them, like, stop dead in their tracks and think, wait, 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 that's a song. (laughs) And they write a song. (laughs) And you have a take on that. In the movie, you know, Al is uh, in college at this time, and um, one of his uh, roommates puts on the radio, and My Sharona is playing, and Al opens the refrigerator to make a sandwich, and there's really nothing in it except some bologna, which belongs to his roommate. And the roommate says, you can have my bologna. And Al stops and thinks, oh, that's a song. <laughs> and, and next thing, like he writes, my bologna to the melody of my Sharona. Um, so has that ever happened to you, that a song kind of, came to you based on something that you were experiencing in that moment? It happens pretty rarely. I mean, that that's the thing with almost all of the biopics, musical biopics, is um, they want to show the moment of epiphany, like where did this idea come from? And usually the, the truth of the matter is it's not a cinematic moment. You know, it's, it's something very <laughs> yes, internal exactly. yeah, uh, yeah. for the songwriter, which you can't really show on the big screen that well. Uh, so a lot of times it's fabricated for the sake of the movie. And obviously we take that trope and we exaggerate it. And most songwriters, I think, will tell you that they don't have any kind of like, like eureka moments, uh, like is shown in so many biopics. Okay, so here's my Bologna. This is Weird Al Yankovic. Show 
That's My Bologna, one of the songs that's included in the new movie Weird, which is a parody biopic of parodist Weird Al Yankovic's life. And it's streaming for free on the Roku channel.com. So, you know, after that song comes to you, your roommate says, I don't know if that comes from God or the devil, but the world needs to hear it. That's also another trope from biopics and of like rock and roll movies in general. Like, is this the devil's music or anything pertaining to the blues? <laughs> this is like the devil's music or, or is it great? You know, um, so as a parodist and as an accordion player, did you feel outside of that whole world of like, this is the devil's music or, you know, like rock and roll unleashes all these like wild feelings, <laughs> you know, or, or like <laughs> or gangster rap, maybe it's dangerous. Like you were so in a different world, even as a child, like playing accordion, you just weren't a part of like, like the danger and sexual thrill that like pop and rock was supposed to be and rhythm and blues and soul music. Yeah, accordion music was always considered extremely safe to the point of being corny. Uh, it was, it was uh, pe- people thought of the Lawrence Welk show uh, and Myron Floor, and it didn't have a very hip reputation uh, in the 60s, which is when I started taking my accordion lessons. Um, and yeah, and there, there was humor to be gleaned from the juxtaposition of, of accordion music and rock and roll uh, because they, they just felt like such disparate genres, you know. Um, and, uh, and and I toyed with the whole satanic thing uh, a couple times because I used uh, some backwards masking in some of my songs. Uh, just because at, uh, at the time people were all up in arms like, oh, he said something backwards on this song. That must be satanic. <laughs> and my messages were always things like, wow, you must have an awful lot of free time on your hands. Or <laughs> Satan eats cheese whiz, you know. <laughs> So I, I always had a little bit of fun with that. But uh, as far as I can tell, there was nothing actually satanic in my music. Um, accordion is, is, I think, a great instrument. Um, and if you listen to, like, you know, Zydeco or Polka or things like the Three Penny Opera or like some avant-garde jazz, um, tango, like accordion is just like a mainstay of that. And it's really such an interesting instrument what did you learn when you were taking accordion lessons? Like, what did you grow up on? When I started taking lessons, and again, this would have been ages 7 to 10, uh, it was mostly polkas and uh, waltzes and, you know, various classical pieces, a lot of public domain stuff. Um, they didn't teach you Iron Butterfly on the accordion. <laughs> they, you know, rock and roll wasn't something that was part of the daily lesson. Uh, so I got a little bit bored after age 10 and decided I would just kind of learn on my own. So I learned to play by ear uh, a lot of rock and roll songs on the accordion. And getting back to what you said, yeah, it's the accordion uh, is actually a, a beautiful instrument. It's a very sensual instrument. And a lot of uh, indie bands are, have discovered that in the last couple of decades and incorporating it into their arrangements and instrumentation. Um, and uh, even back in the 50s uh, with Dick Contino, I mean, he was kind of a sex symbol playing the accordion back then. So, um, you know, I, I'm just trying to bring, bring sexy back to the accordion. Well, speaking of not bringing sexy back to the accordion, Myron Florin. Um, <laughs> so he was, the, <laughs> he was the accordion player on the Lawrence Welk show for, for years and years. And, of course, Lawrence Welk is still on some PBS stations and reruns of reruns of reruns. And uh, my husband and I watch it a lot because it's such an odd show. I mean, to see 
what passed for entertainment then and how really square and corny the music was, although there were some great, great musicians in the band. But like Myron Florin on accordion, he had to like smile all the time. Like you could not not smile. Right. <laughs> and and his playing was like... So happy, so happy. Yeah, and the playing was like so flashy but so corny. Uh, and I was wondering if you watched him on Lawrence Welk when you were taking lessons. I loved Myron Florin. Myron Florin was the first autograph I ever got. He came no to uh, my really? town. <laughs> and there's a picture of me uh, smiling next to Myron Florin as he gives me my first autograph. And it was a big deal for me because, you know, and granted, okay, not the hippest entertainer in the world, but he was great. He was a great, great accordion player, and I, I admire him tremendously. What did people think of you? What did your contemporaries think of you when you were a kid and when you were a teenager playing accordion? It was uh, hard to join my friends' rock bands because when I was uh, in my early teens, you know, that was my goal. Like, oh, I just want to jam with some, you know, like-minded musicians. Let's, you know, let's play some rock and roll. And for some reason, nobody wanted to uh, have an accordion player in their band. And that's one of the few things in the biopic that's actually true because Daniel Radcliffe, as me, uh, just cannot seem to fit in anywhere uh, in in mainstream with with, with rock bands. Um, but yeah, so I, I figured out that I, I just kind of had to go my own direction and just, uh, you know, follow my own muse if I wanted to have any kind of uh, career whatsoever. And that was parodies? I mean, did you ever try just like playing songs that you liked on accordion and trying to create your own band? My, my, my brain sort of uh, uh, deviated and into comedy because it was, it was hard for me to take playing the accordion seriously because if you, if you play the accordion seriously, then, you know, you're playing, you know, Italian weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that. And, and, uh, and I was uh, obsessed with the Dr. Demento show and I loved all the funny music on that. And, um, and Dr. Demento uh, loved my accordion playing because he said uh, the reason he played me on the air was because I was this teenage kid playing the accordion thinking I was cool. And that was that was a pretty novel concept back back in the early 70s. Did you think you were cool? Well, not as such. I mean, I knew I was a nerd. I, I knew I was uh, a dork. I, I didn't really fit in at school with my friends. I was, you know, eating lunch by myself at the lunch tables a lot. So I, I didn't think I was a social butterfly or a big man on campus. I was, you know, I was a nerd. And this is back before being a nerd was considered cool. Like nowadays people are like, oh, I've always been a nerd. Or like they brag about their nerd cred. And you know, when I was in high school, that was not a thing you, <laughs> you bragged about. Who nicknamed you weird? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I know that nickname was given to me in my uh, dorms in my freshman year in college. Uh, it, it was a nickname that I think a couple of people were, were calling me because uh, they found me to be weird. You know, I, I did not fit in and they just thought I was just like strange guy wandering the halls of the dorm. And they'd say, oh, there goes Weird Al. And, uh, you know, again, it was, it, it was kind of derogatory at the time, but I decided to take it on professionally uh, when I started doing college radio because everybody on the air needed some kind of wacky nickname. And I thought, oh, I've already got a wacky nickname. It's Weird Al. So it was the Weird Al show every Saturday night. And uh, it, just, uh, it just stuck. So let's take a short break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Al Yankovic and his new movie Weird is a parody of biopics depicting a very funny um, untrue version of Al Yankovic's life. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air.
Let's get back to my interview with Al Yankovic, who's famous around the world for his parodies of hit pop tunes and rock tunes and hip-hop music. And his new movie, Weird, satirizes music biopics and also is a totally upside-down version of Al Yankovic's real life. I'm wondering what it was like for you when hip-hop came along and gangster rap, because there's a, it's a very popular form of music, but um, it would be somewhere between problematic and offensive to a lot of people if, you know, a white musician was parroting black songs, you know, songs by black artists. Um, so I can see how you dealt with that looking at your music, but can you talk about that a little bit, about the challenges that presented to you and how you went about dealing with them? Yeah, I can understand why some people might think that that's problematic, but I think the fact that I respect the music so much uh, goes a long way towards, you know, making people feel better about it because, you know, I'm not making fun of rap music or hip-hop music. Uh, I'm, I'm really taking pains to to emulate uh, the sound and the intonations. And in fact, you know, I got a lot of nice compliments, like from Chameleonaire when I did White and Nerdy. He was really impressed by my rapping skills. Uh, so I think the fact that I'm not, like, like being, like, white guy doing rap music, ha-ha, that's not the joke. Uh, I'm just using the music uh, to do my comedy like I have for any other music I've ever done in my life. Uh, and I, lo I love doing rap music for a number of reasons, one of which being that there are a lot of words to play with. Uh, because for a lot of pop songs, uh, it's limiting because it, it's either repetitive or there aren't that many syllables. And I have to be very concise in my humor and jokes because I only have, you know, a finite amount of space to, to, to be funny in. But in rap music... There are a lot of words, and uh, and it just opens it up and, and gives me more breathing room. So that's one of the reasons why I've always enjoyed doing doing the rap songs. Well, I want to play White and Nerdy, and this is a parody, as you said, of Chameleonaire's Riding. And um, the lyrics originally are about how the cops are trying to catch him riding dirty, riding with weapons or drugs. And so White and Nerdy is like a nerdy white guy talking about you know mowing his lawn and th things like that. So do you want to say anything about your approach to parroting this specific song? Well, this is one of my favorite songs, uh, not only because uh, it was my, my highest selling song and my only platinum single, my only top 10 single, but uh, I didn't have to do any research whatsoever because I spent my whole life doing research to write white and nerdy. So it came very <laughs> easily to me. Okay, let's hear it. This is El Yankovic. X-Men comics, you know I collect them. The pins in my pocket, I must protect them. My ergonomic keyboard never leaves me bored. Shopping online for deals on spreadable media. I edit Wikipedia. I memorize Holy Grail really well. I can recite it right now. And have you R-O-T-F-L-O-L. I got a business doing websites. websites. While my friends need some code, who do they call? I do HTML for them all. Even made a homepage for my doll. Yo, I got myself a fanny pack. They were having a sale down at the Gap. In my nights with a roll of bubble wrap. Pop, pop, hope no one sees me getting freaky. I'm nerdy in the extreme and whiter than sour cream. 
team I was in a V club and glee club and even the chess team Only question I ever thought was hard What do I like Kirk or do I like Picard? Spend every weekend at the Renaissance Fair Got my name on my underwear That's Weird Al Yankovic and his recording White and Nerdy His new parody of music biopics that also parodies his own life is called Weird. So among other things that you did along similar but different lines is you did a mashup of songs from Hamilton with with the original lyrics, but all done as polkas. And it's so much fun. Um, how did you get the idea of doing this? This is uh, something that I've done uh, since the beginning of my career. I, I've, I've had a polka medley on... Not every album, but almost. I think I've had a, like a dozen or so polka medleys uh, over the years. And uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda is a, a good friend of mine, and uh, uh, we're we're mutual fans. And at one point, Lynn said, "Hey, why don't you do a polka medley for Hamilton?" And I, I jumped at the chance. It, it's something that I probably would have done even if he hadn't asked me first. Uh, but I was part of his Hamil Drops series. Uh, once a month, he would release a new song uh, inspired by Hamilton, and he wanted one of those Hamill drops to be the Hamilton polka. Uh, so I, uh, I put everything I had into it because, you know, I love Lynn and I wanted to do good by him. Uh, and I took about a dozen or so songs from Hamilton. Uh, not the, the saddest ones. I thought that might be a little too much. But uh, a lot of Act One songs uh, and uh, put them together and, uh, and, and he loved it. And, uh, and uh, in fact, if you look online, he, he, his wife, uh, Vanessa, recorded his reaction the first time he heard the Hamilton polka and it's something that I, that I treasure to this day. What was his reaction? He was yeah, almost crying. He was just so happy. He just, he just loved it. Okay, let's hear it. This is so much fun. So this is Weird Al Yankovic's polka medley of songs from Hamilton. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens, but no one else is in the room where it happens. We're outgunned, what? outmanned, what? outnumbered, outplanned. We gotta make an all-out stand, and yo, I'm gonna need a right-hand man. Hey! Hamilton, sir, he knows what to do in a trench, and you knew with a fluent in French, I mean. Hamilton, so you're gonna have to use him eventually. What's he gonna do on the bench, I mean. Hamilton, no one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance. Hamilton, you wanna fight for your land back? Hamilton, I need my right-hand man back. Hamilton, I'll get your right-hand man back. Hamilton, you know you gotta get your right-hand man back. I mean, you gotta put some thought to the letter, but the sooner the better to get your right-hand man back. It must be nice, it must be nice to have Washington It's Weird Al Yankovic and his medley of polka songs from Hamilton. Um, so let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Al Yankovic, and his new movie, which he co-wrote, is called Weird. It's a parody of music biopics and also a parody of Al Yankovic's life. It's now streaming online for free on the RokuChannel.com, and you can also see it on Roku devices. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air.
This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Al Yankovic, who's famous for his song parodies of hit records. And his new movie, Weird, is a parody of biopics using a totally fictionalized version of Al Yankovic's life. So I want to ask you about another song. You did a parody of Nirvana's um, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and what you did was Smells Like Nirvana. And and the song is um, about how you can't figure out any of the lyrics and have no idea what the song is about, you know, what, what the Smells Like Teen Spirit is about. Um, were you p- more puzzled by his singing or by what the lyrics meant or, or both of them? Kind of all of the above. I mean, it, you know, and it wasn't an opinion that I came uh, by out of a vacuum. I mean, I, th- I think when uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was a big hit, a lot of people were like, what's he saying? And, and what does it mean? And it, there was just sort of a lot of confusion. So I just uh, took that general attitude and I parlayed it into a song. And uh, Smells Like Nirvana is one of only like three or four songs that I've done, which are, I think, actually considered satirical because they are, uh, uh, they are commentary on the actual song or the artist. I've done that with Lady Gaga and uh, I think Billy Ray Cyrus and maybe one or two others, I'm not sure. But certainly Smells Like Nirvana was one of those where the whole song is about, like, what are we talking about here? So let's hear it. That was Weird Al Yankovic's take on Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, and his version is called Smells Like Nirvana. I was wondering, what was your reaction when Kurt Cobain died? Did you feel any regret about having done the song? Not that I think that you should feel regret. I'm just wondering how you experienced that. I was extremely sad because I loved Kurt. Um, you know, uh, I didn't, I wasn't close with him, but I mean, I'd met him a couple times, and and uh, and I'm a, I was a huge fan of his music. Still, I'm a huge fan of his music, so I just felt a profound sense of loss. Uh, I didn't have any regret about doing the parody because uh, Kurt loved the song, and um, he wrote very nice things about me in his personal journal, which got published after his passing. Uh, he called me a, a, a modern rock genius. I mean, it was like this mind blowing stuff. Um, the the uh, it did it did make it a little awkward for me because when he died, uh, I was in the middle of a tour and and smells like Nirvana was my big hit, and it made it a little awkward for me because I thought, is this 
you know, how are people going to react to this? Is, is, is it going to be bad taste for me to now play this song, you know, after Kurt has just died? And I was, I was about to play Seattle, you know, oh, a couple of weeks later. Like, can I <laughs> yeah. play this in like Kurt's hometown, uh-huh. you know? And uh, what I wound up doing was before we played the song, I did a very solemn, you know, thank you to Kurt and, and tried to have like a moment of respect. And then we went into the song. And, uh, and I will say it got its biggest reaction in Seattle. People appreciated it and loved the spirit in, in which I was, you know, uh, delivering it. And, and uh, it, it all worked out. What kind of permissions do you legally need now to do a song parody the kind that you do where often it's like musically note for note from the original recording, but, you know, the lyrics uh, are, are different. So, you know, you're satirizing the lyric, but the music isn't really, the, the instrumentation isn't really a satire. It's the thing. It's the, it sounds like the original thing. It's a gray area in terms of legally what I need to do, uh, especially in cases like Smells Like a Nirvana, because, again, that's satire and that's considered free speech and, and fair use. And if push came to shove, if it, if it went to the courts, uh, generally that's, you know, the courts rule in favor of the parody artist. But I, I you know, I don't go by just what's legal. I, I go for what I think is right. And what's right to me is always getting permission from the original songwriters and get their blessing. Uh, because if, if an artist doesn't want me to do their song, I will back off. I mean, no matter what you know the courts or the law says, it's like I, I just want to, you know, do do good by them because I respect artists and I, I don't ever want them to feel like I'm you know stepping on their toes. In a lot of music biopics, the musician's life and career are nearly ruined by alcohol or drugs, because success leads to. Excess, which leads to addiction, which leads to being non-functional, and then either that's followed by death <laughs> or by a comeback and getting sober. Um, this happens in your movie, um, which is really funny because you're known for you know abstaining from alcohol and drugs, but I imagine you felt like you needed to put this in the biopic because it's such a staple. Yeah, I, I think I want to get into alcohol and drugs in my 80s. I'm just kind of building up to it. I, I don't want to rush into anything. Um, <laughs> no, it's. I, I think I think all biopics have that dramatic arc, and we're obviously making fun of that. Uh, so in order to have a traditional Hollywood biopic, I had to have, you know, this descent, this downward spiral, you know, the, the alcohol, the drug abuse, everything else. Um, and we're just kind of playing off of that because um, the same thing with uh, Behind the Music and in the uh, in the '90s, MTV did or VH1 did a behind the music on me, and behind the music's are always famous for the same things. It's like you know, 35 minutes into it, always it's and then things went horribly wrong, and they talk about the artist's spiral into depression and drugs and everything else. And I never had that. I didn't have that in my life. So we had to manufacture some drama for the biopic. Um, has it been um, challenging to not drink or do drugs in the music world because you became a star and were a part of the music world and hung out with stars and probably were invited to parties with a lot of excess? No, it wasn't hard. I mean, you know, you can always turn things down. Uh, I didn't have a lot of peer pressure. I was like, what are you, a chicken? Come on, what are you, a chicken? <laughs> you know, it's, we're all adults. It's like you can just say, like Dancy Reagan, just say no. <laughs> 
Um, what was it like for you when you did become famous and suddenly you were a part of the world that you were an outsider from and never thought you'd really be a part of because you were not a rock god. You didn't play guitar or drums or keyboards. It was a little odd for me because uh, I've always had an outsider status, you know, especially starting out because I was just this this weirdo kid from L.A. playing the accordion and making fun of all the people on the inside of the elite in the in the you know the 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 people in the the at the top of the pop stratosphere, like all the big rock stars and the pop stars and all these famous people. And here was this dorky kid like making fun of them. And now all of a sudden I was finding myself inside that bubble. I was at the same award shows, sometimes the same parties and rubbing elbows with the people that I was making fun of. So that was, <laughs> that was a little bit of an adjustment, but it was, uh, yeah, it, it, I'm still kind of getting used to it. It's kind of strange. How has that changed your self-image? Um, well, I mean, it's good for my self-esteem. I mean, you know, uh, I'm uh, by nature actually a very shy person and uh, being somewhat famous has, has helped me, you know, be more social and, and talk to people. I mean, I would, I would always be the person like hanging onto the, the, the wall at parties and waiting for somebody to come up and talk to me, which is nice, you know, having some notoriety because now people do. People will come up and talk to me, which is nice because I'm, I'm not a, a very, you know, outgoing person socially. Uh, my, my dad was very um, gregarious and, and was always, you know, in people's faces, but my mom was very very introverted. And I, I think I got probably got more of my mom's personality in terms of my, my, my social life. Let's take a short break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Al Yankovic and his new movie, Weird, is a parody of biopics depicting a very funny, um, untrue version of Al Yankovic's life. We'll be right back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. I want to ask you about something like very serious which is um, that your parents both died in, um, I guess you could call it an accident at home from inhaling, was it carbon monoxide from the fireplace? That sounds so horrible and so um, unnecessary, like it should never have happened. Do you understand what happened? Well, um as best as we can figure out, the uh, the uh, flue in the fireplace was closed. There was a fire uh, in the fireplace, and I guess they went to sleep, uh, and not knowing that, and they they both passed from carbon monoxide poisoning. How did you find out about this? Uh, my wife called me. I was I was on the road at the time, so she called me. Uh, I was handed the phone in my tour bus, and my my wife was weeping, and she told me, and um, and it was the worst moment of my life. So you were on the tour bus. You weren't at home. How did you decide what to do next? Uh, well, it was it was tough because I I was literally in the middle of a tour, and I uh, I certainly didn't want to be performing that night uh, or any time in the in the near future. But um, I realized that I had a, a small army of people working for me. I had people that had bought tickets to all these seats, and I didn't want to disappoint anybody. So uh, I kind of wanted to keep it under wraps. I wanted to grieve privately and quietly and not even let people know what was going on because I didn't want people walking on eggshells around me. I didn't want people who would ostensibly come to a comedy show, watch a guy trying to suppress his grief on stage. 
so I, my initial thought was, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to somehow get through these shows, but I just don't want anybody to know what's going on. Uh, but within an hour, it was like global news, and everybody knew about it. So, How did they find out if you were keeping it secret? Well, I mean, th- people find out. It was on CNN. It was, it was everywhere within, within a couple hours. So uh, pe- people knew. Um, so I, I continued with, with, this, with this show. I, I did a, a, um, uh, a, a tribute to my parents before doing the show, before the concert, and then got through it. Um, and, you know, for, for two hours every night, I would just try to put on a smile and pretend like my, my life wasn't crumbling and, uh, and, uh, and do the show. And uh, I, we, we canceled the meet and greets because I didn't really want to talk to anybody or hang out or, or be social. I just wanted to do my job and then just get back to the bus and, and, and grieve quietly. Uh, and, and, and honestly, it was a bit therapeutic for me because, you know, um, it, it was nice to have the outpouring of love from the fans because the, the fans knew what was going on in my life. And, and, and it was just really nice to, to have them respond so supportively. And uh, it, it kind of helped me move on a, a bit from where I was. I, I know you are a Christian. How do you, how do you explain to yourself when a tragedy like this happens? I, I don't have any kind of greater explanation for it. Uh, it's horribly sad and it's horribly unfortunate. And um, um, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain it other than that. And, and you just kind of deal with it the best way you can. Uh, there's no getting over it, really. I mean, I've never gotten over it, but I've, I've learned to accept it. And it's now, that, that sense of loss is just something that is part of my life now. So I want to close with a song. And um, this is Another One Rides the Bus, which is your version of Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. And this, this, this is an important song in your career because it's how you hooked up with the person who became your longtime drummer. So tell us the story behind writing the song and finding the drummer. Um, I recorded Another One Rides the Bus, the original version, uh, on September 14th, 1980. And that's a big date in my, my life because that's when I not only did that song live on the Dr. Demento radio show, but that's the night that I met John Bermuda Schwartz, my drummer, who is my drummer to this very day. Uh, and uh, I wrote the song in maybe like 20 minutes. It was just something I kind of dashed off because Another One Bites the Dust was a big hit. And I thought, oh, I need something to play on the Dr. Demento show this Sunday night. And uh, I, I got a bunch of people around the studio together, around the microphone, and uh, John Bermuda Schwartz uh, said, hey, I'm a drummer. And I said, oh, well, great, you can bang on my accordion case. And everybody made noises and shouted and, and sang along. And uh, th- thankfully, Dr. Demento had a reel-to-reel tape recorder going for an air check uh, because that live performance was the only recording that we had for Another One Rides the Bus. That version was what wound up on, on the album, and up until this, the soundtrack to the movie, that was the only version of the song that existed. So you re-recorded it for the movie? We did. We, we rec- except for Eat It, I think we re-recorded all of the, uh, the parody songs because they were meant to sound like live performances, so we needed to be able to have slightly different versions than the actual studio recording. So, yeah, everything, all the parodies in the, in the movie are the 2022 version of the song. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, thank you for your music. Thank you for the new film, and I wish you well. Well, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Thank you. 
Al Yankovic co-wrote the new satirical biopic Weird, which is an imaginary version of his own life. It's streaming for free on Roku.com. Riding in a bus down the boulevard and the pace was pretty packed. Yeah. But I seen so I had to stand with the perverts in the back. It was smelling like a locker room. There was junk all over the floor. We're already packed in like sardines before we stop in to pick up more. Look out! Another one rides the bus. Uh. Another one rides the bus. Uh. And another comes on and another comes on. Another one rides the bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you. Another one rides the bus. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the increasing tensions between China and the U.S. over Taiwan, which was one of the subjects of this week's meeting between President Biden and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. Our guest will be New Yorker staff writer Dexter Filkins, who will explain the history of the conflict between China and Taiwan, China's increasingly threatening military exercises, and how an armed conflict might play out. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross.